Amen. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn it on or open it up? You choose. We're going to Acts 5. If it's any help, it's page 939 in my Bible, but I'm helpfully not using the one that's in your chairs. We're looking the first seed today is about being convinced. Being convinced that we're on the winning team. Being convinced that God is with us. Being convinced that there is more to come. So let's start reading from verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they'd been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported... We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. You know, our first week in this job, and I took on leading the Evangelical Alliance about three months before COVID, so it's been really fun. Um, it's been really important, it's been really fun. And in my first week in this job, I was interviewed by a secular journalist. First question, why is the church dying? I said, I've never heard so strange a question. I don't understand why you'd be asking that. More people gave their lives to Jesus yesterday than any day since Jesus rose from the dead. And if you want better news still, more people will give their lives to Jesus today than did yesterday. The church has never grown this fast in its history. I've never felt so much on the winning team. I do not understand your question, and it couldn't be less based in fact than anything else you could ask me. She said, okay. She said, why is the UK church dying? I said, that's a totally different question. I said, you see, there's not a section in heaven for British people. And I'm not going to lose every time. You know, people try and make you as Christians take the worst view on the world so you can feel like you're doing the worst. Our family has never grown so fast as it's growing right now. I long to see it here, don't you? But I'm going to hold to the global picture, not the local one, because we're part of a global family, not just a local one. And we need to rediscover some of our confidence in what God can do. We might be living in a secular tsunami, but secularism's offered no hope, has it? What hope has it offered? We're in a cost of living crisis. We're in a pandemic before. Secularism, which is allegedly the religion of our day, has offered no hope. I was on a Radio 4 debate with two humanist academics. I mean, they had massive brains, right? I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I can tell a good story, but that's very different to being like an academic, right? And these guys are there, and they're all these theories and all this stuff, and it's just, I didn't know afterwards. And at the end, the host says, Reverend Calver, what do you think? 
I just said, I think it's really a real shame that in a time when the nation is desperate to believe that there is hope, these two incredible gentlemen have only contributed to making the deficit of hope greater. You see, for me, hope as a name, his name is Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. I went into a gospel ask, then they cut you off because you're not allowed to do it at the BBC. But you, you've got to have a go, haven't you? As I tried. We're living in a time when the world thinks prayer could be seen as harmful. We're living in the time of a cost of living crisis. But in the midst of it, we have the same God with us every day and every moment who has overseen these revivals through history, who rose from the dead, and who is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is with us today. And we need to rediscover our confidence in being convinced that he is with us and for us. So three little things as you start this series that I think are important. Simple reminders. You'll know them all already, but it's important to be reminded. And the first is this from verses 12 to 16. Our God is all-powerful. Our God is all-powerful. I'm a keen runner. I go running every other day. Not too far, maybe six or seven miles a pop. And I'm a keen runner. And I run in Adidas running shoes. Only because there's an outlet near my house. Nothing else. Their advertising slogan is, impossible is nothing. Every time you put this body in those shoes, that proves to be false marketing. (laughs) There is so much that is impossible for me. But with our God, literally nothing is impossible. This is the moment to extend our prophetic imaginations for what God could do. I think for some of us, we've made him small enough or tame enough or cute enough that he doesn't disrupt our comfort. But God could do anything. I love it in this passage that it's the fact that God's doing stuff that gets them into trouble. Some of us are good at getting into trouble, some of us are not. But in this passage, it's no one's behaviour, it's the move of God that gets the apostles into trouble. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love it if Chichester Council got really cross with you because God was doing something so amazing that they couldn't contain it? That's what's going on here. That same God is here with us now. You know, angered by a previous assault on the apostles where they'd thrown a couple of them in jail, the authorities now throw them all in jail because they see that this powerful God's moving and they think we must stop him. Our God is so powerful. You know what I love about our God too? He can move powerfully even when we do things badly. Don't you find that a great comfort? If it was dependent on me, we're in trouble. But he can move powerfully even when we blow it. My worst ever sermon was over a decade ago in North Wales. It was on a Friday night. Getting to North Wales from London on a Friday night is something of a disaster. It was also in my youth ministry days. I had been told there will be hundreds of young people there. I eventually got there after the journey from death, and I get there, and I've got more fingers than there were young people at this event. There were nine teenagers. Also, the churches are clubbed together in the area to hire in a 10-foot-high stage, Because they'd paid for it, they insisted that I preach from it. I'm already six foot three. So there I am, 16 foot three in the air, (laughs) towering over a bunch of young people smaller in number than the disciples. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to do what I had to do, but they brought me in to preach the gospel. So begrudgingly and through gritted teeth, I preached the gospel to this splattering of people. Then what happens is, this is back in the day before bank transfers, you used to have the ministry of envelopes. They'd give you an envelope with a check towards your work in it. I always had a rule, do not open the envelope till you get home. Spend the journey home talking with Jesus about how it went. Do not decide how it went based on the size of the gift. 
So all the way home until the early hours, me and the Lord are discussing the event, and I think we've both decided it's been an abject failure. <laughs> I then get home. I open the envelope. Out falls the gift. Five-pound book token. <laughs> you can't put that in a petrol tank, right? So I have paid for the worst day ever. <laughs> then not long ago, I was preaching in Stoke-on-Trent, and afterwards, this lad comes up to me. He's probably about 25. And he says, do you remember that youth event in North Wales with no young people in the huge stage? I'm like, I remember it, fella. You want some, do you? <laughs> he says, I gave my life to Jesus that night. I said, how? <laughs> he said, I'm now a youth evangelist. I've just done a mission locally. 32 young lads gave their lives to Jesus last week. You only have to get one Samaritan woman to get their village. Too often we think it's about us. Our God is all-powerful. And that all-powerful God is present in your workplace, in your social spaces, in your homes, on your street. We need to re-find our prophetic imaginations for what God could do in this moment. He's all-powerful. But then secondly, verses 17 to 21, Christianity can't be swept away. Christianity can't be swept away. People think they can get rid of Christianity, don't they? You can't. In fact, if you want Christianity to not grow, put it under no pressure. I don't like the place we find ourselves in the UK where we're increasingly marginalised. We're nowhere near persecuted, but we're increasingly marginalised. However, Christianity grows from the margins, not the mainstream. So I also look at the days ahead and think, wow, the the stars are going to shine brightly in the universe and we're going to see something amazing in the UK. Because if you know, do you know what the fastest growing church in the world is? Iran. Iran is the fastest growing church in the world where you can lose your life for having a Bible. My wife Anne did some training with some Iranian pastors. They were in Turkey, because you can't do it in Iran. But Turkey's not totally safe either. So what they did as well as this training was they hired a hotel swimming pool. So no one caught on. They put on swimming lessons for local kids for free during the day. But then they've worked out between dusk and dawn, they could baptise 350 Iranians each night, and (laughs) no one notices. (laughs) Friends, all around the world, the church is exploding. And this time in the passage, it's not just Peter and John who are arrested, but all of the apostles, and they're thrown into jail. Who do you feel sorry for? Tell you who I feel sorry for? The two guards. Those apostles now think, brilliant, captive audience, poor guards. You see, life's about perspective a lot of the time. When David fights Goliath, two choices. One, he's so big he's going to kill me. Or the perspective I prefer, he's so big there's no way I'm going to miss And in our moment, we need to see what the opportunities are. You know, my years working with young people meant that we often said, what does the Bible look like, not just what does it say? Because the Bible is the most visual book ever when you actually talk about what it looks like. And it's important when engaging with younger generations, we do that. For example, um, what does it look like at the feeding of the 5,000? I think we should have been there. The thing that gets me most is, especially in John's account, is a a young lad who'd have been starving from travelling for hours, a young lad gives his lunch to Andrew to give to Jesus. Now, that doesn't make any sense, because young lads, as far as I know, eat everything. So the lunch that Jesus feeds twelve to 15,000 people with, because let's be honest, no one counted the women and children, the lunch that Jesus does that with is a lunch that a young lad who would eat anything looked at and thought, I don't fancy this, give it to Jesus. I mean, what a moment when a lunch that even a boy rejects is used to feed a field. Or what about when Jesus is resurrected? In the, in the Gospel of John, the very first thing he does, folds up dirty washing. Buried in two sheets, Mary and Joseph clearly raised him really well. He rises from the dead, and the first thing he does, he starts folding up one of the sheets. Then at some point, he realizes he's got more important things to be doing. Leaves one sheet folded, one unfolded. Out he comes with the resurrection message. It's interesting, isn't it? What about Lot's wife? 
Have you ever asked yourself, why a pillar of salt, not a pillar of pepper? I wish I knew. (laughs) What about Elijah and Elisha? Fifty prophets, river splits. They go up this little hill. Elijah turns to Elisha. What do you want? I want to be twice as good as you. They get to the top of the hill. There's chariots, there's whirlwinds, there's fire. Elijah goes to heaven. All Elisha's left with is some skanky second-hand coat. Elisha's walking back down the hill, bricking it. I can't even make a river split. But in the end, wax the water. Where is the God of Elijah? Waiting for Elisha to continue the work. The Bible's so visual, isn't it? But in this passage, let's get visual. Because they're banged up. But then during the night, I mean, this is crazy. You read it and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 hang on. During the night, an angel comes along, walks past the guards, unlocks the door, says, out you come, fellas. Here's the fun bit. Locks the door again. Good news, fellas, you're free. Bad news, you better crack on doing some more preaching. You know, but what a risk. The authorities think they can get rid of Christianity by locking up the Christians. You can get rid of the odd Christian, but Christianity cannot be swept away. Throughout history, people have tried to get rid of Christianity by persecuting Christians, but it doesn't work. From the early church, where where in that time many of the first disciples were used as human candles in Emperor Nero's garden, through to things like the so-called Islamic State of today. You cannot get rid of Christianity, however much people try. You know, and we know the end of the story, don't we, friends? If you want to be convinced, we need to hold on to the end of the story, not the middle that we're living in. The end of the story, regardless of how many good or bad things happen between now and the end of time, the end of the story is that Jesus wins. Therefore, in the middle, we can stand strong, knowing it will be okay. I love it when Paul writes to Rome in Romans 1. I'm bound, I'm eager, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We all think, yeah, good, good, good. Well done, Paul. Well done, good. But when you actually think what that would have looked like, Rome was the ultimate in imperial power and pride. It was the ultimate in human creation. People would go on a sort of quasi-pilgrimage to stare in awe and wonder at what Rome was, what people had created. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this fantastic? Look what people have done. Wow! It was the ultimate power base. In contrast, Paul was a funny-looking little fella. He had a bald patch, crooked nose, Bad eyesight, bandy legs, no great rhetorical gifts. So funny-looking little fella, incredible city of imperial power and pride. Paul writes, I'm bound, I'm eager, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In that day, he might have been laughed out of town for that opinion, but 2,000 years on, Rome is a bunch of ruins and Jesus is alive. We have got to hold on to our confidence in our moment, despite what's going on around us, because our God is all-powerful. No matter what's done to us, Christianity can't be swept away. And finally, we are compelled to share the message, verses 21 to 25. Does anyone know what they are on the screen? Grains of sand under a microscope. Sand from a distance looks the same. Up close, it all looks very different. It's a bit like people. We're compelled to share. We're all compelled to share. Every Christian is either a witness or an imposter. Let's not be imposters. And it's going to take all of us to make a difference in this nation and in this community. And let's get one thing clear as well. None of us find sharing the gospel a, an absolutely fearless, simple task. We all get scared. We might have different lines. I think what my line is, I don't like preaching in parks. So what do you mean? What I mean is churches get together. You might do this in Chichester and you'd say, let's do something at maybe Pentecost. We'll get all the churches together and we'll do it outside in the park and we'll have a gospel message. But then the church leaders look around and think, ah, none of us fancy doing that. What what chump can we bring in from outside to come in and preach in a park? Invariably, I'm that chump. And I come into the park and I'm like, I just don't want to do it. I just, suddenly the swings and slides look compelling. (laughs) 
and yet you've got to preach the gospel in a park. And I was doing this in Bedford not that long ago. It's about 400 Christians. There's a football match going on. There's swings and slides. And I'm like, I don't want to be here, Lord. And I felt the Lord say to me during the last worship song, do not preach like a lion in a church and a mouse in a park. So I got up and I gave it some in the park. And some people came to faith and that was amazing. Then at the end, we prayed for everyone. And this bloke stood up in the cafe because there was a cafe to the right of where we were. So I went over to him and said, mate, mate, what are you standing up for? He said, you told me to. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you said, you want to give your life to Jesus, stand up. So I stood up. I said, this is brilliant. I said, who bought you? He said, no one. He said, I came for a donut and a coffee. And on his plate, there's a half-eaten donut. And I got to pray for this guy and lead him to Jesus. It's amazing. Then we both open our eyes and a pigeon's eating his donut. <laughs> and the guy, the guy genuinely says, seems like a good exchange. I got Jesus, the pigeon got the donut. Anyway, we all have lines, so we're compelled, but that doesn't mean we're not all a bit scared. You know, coming back to the passage, the Sanhedrin has gathered. The Sanhedrin's the Jewish council. Proper wealthy, proper intelligent, properly well-dressed, little all-male group. Like they had brains the size of planets. I'm from a family of geniuses. I really am. I'm not a genius. I've got the looks. But I'm from a family of geniuses. And my three siblings and my old man are geniuses. Me and my mum are a bit more practical. And what we notice about all the geniuses in our family, at least, is they have no common sense. So they can solve any theory or conundrum known to mankind, but they can't put a picture up straight, right? It's like that. That's how I imagine the Sanhedrin. So they're gathered in their circle, proper geniuses, and they send for the apostles. And the messenger comes back. So the Sanhedrin say, where are they? The messenger says, don't know. They said, well, have they got away? I think so. How did they get out? Don't know. Is the door open? No. Are the bars broken? No. Where have they gone? Don't know. And then I love to think of this visual image of this circle of guys who normally can solve everything with steam coming out their ears as their brains the size of the solar system are working on overtime, trying to work out where have they gone. Then someone looks out the window and goes, surprise! They're out there! What are they doing? What are you banging them up for? Because when this gospel gets in your heart, it just overflows. Now what we need to work on here a little bit is We've made a mistake with what witnessing is in the past. If you don't like the evangelism word, use the witnessing one. It it, it works better for more people. But we've professionalized evangelism. So we've made it something that certain people do with big mouths in a certain way. And we've made it very sort of one-dimensional. And the only way we do it is on a course or with a preacher at the front with all your friends coming to church. It's actually the, the whole way the church grew was the gossiping campaign from anyone who knew Jesus. And what we need to do is see every single Christian being a witness in their space. And what we need to do as a church is stop just celebrating decisions and actually work towards lifelong disciples. Good little chat over lunch. When did the disciples become Christians? It's a really fascinating thing to discuss because we think this is this linear journey, but you can do some of this stuff before decision, post-decision, during decision. But what we want is lifelong disciples. And it's going to take all of us reaching everyone for that to happen. Because let me let you in on a secret. I can be a bit much for some people. I can. I love the tube during rush hour. I get on with a Christian friend. We sort of stand in a really compact area, talk loudly to each other about Jesus. If anyone shows any interest, boom, divide and conquer. Right? I accept most people aren't like that. I definitely have the wrong personality for my nationality. That's fine. But we're getting to the point where, unless the church takes seriously the fact that all of us are witnesses where we find ourselves... What hope have we got of seeing the move of God we long to see in this nation? 
You know, I met a passion expert because I'm concerned I'm not passionate enough. <laughs> That's not funny. Oh, because I'm not passionate enough. And I met this passion expert. She said, do you know how you can tell what people are passionate about? I said, yeah, what they spend their money on. She said, no. She said, you literally could not be more wrong. What you spend your money on is socially conditioned. So there's two ways you can tell what people are passionate about. Firstly, what they spend their time on. There's nothing more precious than time. Write down what you spend your time on, and that shows what you care about. They said, secondly, what comes out your mouth? She said, you can't spend half an hour in the presence of someone without hearing out of their mouth what they care most about. You know, I don't believe you can spend half an hour with me without hearing about Jesus, my family, and AFC Wimbledon. It's not possible. I've tested it since. And so I wonder, friends, are we caught up in enough awe and wonder of the Lord that it just overflows from who we are into where we find ourselves? You know, our God is all-powerful. Christianity can't be swept away. We're compelled to share. And here's the thing, friends. We are living in an amazing moment for the gospel. We're living in a moment like we've never had before and may not get again. The whole nation's been through mortality salience through a pandemic where they've questioned their brokenness. Before the pandemic, you thought you were getting old. You got a new moisturizer. During the pandemic, we all stared death in the face and thought about what would it look like? What's going to happen? What happens when I die? The people around you are asking the questions you've been answering for 30 years when they weren't asking them. It's ground zero for our witnessing. We're starting to get again in a new day, in a new landscape. You know, at the end of the Second World War, church attendance was massively up for 18 months. And most social commentators think we're going through the biggest upheavals and changes since the Second World War. So it's not, it's not an unfair comparison. At the end of the Second World War, church attendance was massively up for 18 months. After 18 months, it was back down below pre-Second World War levels. The reason given was that the lost were looking for hope from the church and yet the church got itself comfortable, okay and happy again and by the time the church was okay, the lost looked elsewhere. Friends, I know we're all broken, I know we're all fragile but let's limp towards those who don't know Jesus. You know, I don't trust anyone without a limp, do you? If you don't have a limp, you're either delusional or you live in Disneyland. We've all got pain but can you imagine having faced... Yeah, you too, you go for it, brother. Can you imagine having faced the last few years without Jesus? Can you imagine facing the next few? I don't know how I get through this week without Jesus. And that's a motivation to look towards those who don't know the Lord. We've done some talking Jesus research at the EA. We did it in 2015. It found in 2015, one in five non-Christians want a conversation with a Christian about their personal faith. They don't want to come to church, but they want a conversation with a Christian about their personal faith. We redid exactly the same research, and it's done with 5,000 people, and it's done through comrades. We don't, we don't pick the people. For the BBC to use a stat only has to be 1,000. So this is pretty thorough, rigorous research. We did it again in the middle of last year. It's now one in three. So the spiritual temperature, not of those wanting to come to faith, but of those wanting to have a low-level conversation about your faith, has almost doubled in seven years. And seven years ago, we were ludicrously excited about one in five. You only have to have three mates for one of them to want to know something about Jesus. Now is the time, now is the moment. Church, let's not lose our confidence, but let's go out there on a limb for Jesus. I'll finish by saying this. I would talk to a lamppost about Jesus. So I'm not the best person to ask sometimes. But in my personal interactions, it is easier right now than it's ever been. Witnessing in the end is a muscle which may have gone flabby for some of us. The time to work on muscles is when it's easiest. I really believe if we go out as as witnesses, all of us empowered to be witnesses in this day, we can make something normal that other generations have found too hard. And then when it gets harder again, we won't even notice. So I'll give you two examples of where I found it easier. First one, my hairdresser. Barber. I've gone to the same barber for seven years. 
I live in North West London, means I pay too much for everything. It includes my haircut. It's not hard, it's not done well, but it just costs a lot of money. And so my view was, if you're going to charge me that, I'm going to have a right go every time in that chair at telling you about Jesus. <laughs> for six years, I got absolutely nowhere. Then the first time I went in after the first lockdown, he says this, I'm so pleased to see you. I've never wanted to talk about God so much. I was in there for an hour and a half when I said to him, mate, can you just do my hair now? You know, it's like, we were chatting away and chatting away. Every time I've gone in since, I tell this story because it's not a Hollywood story where he gave his life to Jesus there and then. But ever since I'd written off this guy as anyone who wanted to talk about faith, ever since we've talked about faith, every time I've gone in and I've not been in for less than an hour before he starts my hair. I was in there not so long ago, let me just, uh, about three and a half weeks ago from that length. And he says to me, he says, I don't understand. There's so much rubbish around. Why doesn't everyone just get on their knees and give their lives back to God? I said, I completely agree. Do you want to do that now? He says, oh, I'm nowhere near ready. But he's on a journey. I've given up, friends. I've given up. He's on a journey. Or another one is at a funeral. This guy comes towards me. He's about 25. He's in incredibly good shape. I don't often notice the physique of another man. But this guy's got muscles popping out of everywhere as he walks towards me. It's like looking in a mirror. And, <laughs> and he comes up to me and he starts having a go. He says, my mum used to watch you and your wife on TBN. You had a TV show and she wants you to do some more. You've stopped. You must do some more. She's cross with you. I said, I'm really sorry, mate. We can't do everything. We can't do it all. No, no, you haven't heard me. My mum is cross with you. You must do some more. I said, I'm really sorry. We can't do everything. He said, okay, let me tell you something. He said, I got so bored during the second lockdown that I watched four episodes of your program with my mum. And I gave my life to Jesus. Now, let me just explain, friends. This is me and Anne sat on a sofa talking about complex Bible passages. Because of Ofcom, you can't do gospel asks. It's not very evangelistic. You don't have to do as much in this moment for people to be open. People are crying out for hope. People are crying out for something greater. People are longing for something deeper. People have put their faith in politics. It's blown it. People have put their faith in the football scores. That's a really stupid thing to do. People have put their faith in the economy. That's not working. You know what? In the end, hope as a name, his name is Jesus. And this is our moment as the church to go for it. Because our God is all-powerful. Christianity can't be swept away. We're compelled to share the message. We ask the Lord for forgiveness where we've made evangelism a personality type. When actually witnessing is for all. We need to go for it, church. Because we won't get this day again. I can't imagine a time again. I don't know how it gets higher than one in three people want to know more about your faith. It's a pretty good place to start, isn't it? People tell us we're finished. I think the greatest days have yet to come. And I think the Lord's got great plans for the UK. But it's going to start somewhere with a bunch of Christians saying, here we are, Lord, use us. We'll be your witnesses and we'll go for it. Let's pray, shall we? When I was at school, people's eyes show, when I was at school, every school report apart from PE said three words on it, could do better. Every single one, without fail, could do better. Not should, just could, if you bother trying, you could do better. And I just wonder for some of us, at the start of this new series, we want to say to the Lord, Lord, you know what? I'd love to do better in my witnessing to others. I'd love you to open opportunities to me. I'd love to be more attentive to what you're doing as I find myself in, in, on my front line. I'd love to be more open, Lord, to what you're up to. Because it's one thing to say, I'm not witnessing at all. I now want to be Billy Graham. Let's, friends, that might be too far for now. But I think for some of us, we just want to say, Lord, I really want to do better. And I want you to anoint and equip me to do better. And if that's you and you're able, I want you just to stand so I can pray for you because I'd just love to pray for, for the Lord to equip and anoint some of us just to, to make more of the opportunity in front of us as we seek to share his hope. So if that's you, you want to just stand if you're able.
I'm going to pray, but then I'm going to invite Ellen to come and pray the second half of the prayer. Why? Because I'm not planning on being here next week. I say not planning on it, because in the Lord's kingdom, who knows? But I'm not planning on being here next week. And this is an important moment for us. It's a bit of a commissioning moment for us. It always hits me that the world was changed by a youth group of 12, and in that, three of them blew it anyway, but one denied him doubt and betrayed him. But they changed the world, and yet, what confidence could we have in Chichester? This many of us saying, we want to do better. We want to be used more. Want to go further. So, Spirit of the Living God, would you fall afresh on your people? We pray. Would you give us a confidence, Lord? Would you give us a confidence in you? We thank you, Lord, that you're the God of the revival in Iran and in China and in the early church in Acts, and you're here with us. We thank you, Lord, that you are all powerful. And I just pray, Lord, that you would use us. I pray, Lord, we'd have our confidence because we know the end of the story. But Lord, I do pray we'd be compelled to share. So I pray you'd give us an opportunity in the next couple of days, so gaping, so obvious, we couldn't miss it. Something in front of us where we can speak up and speak out for you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, it's not just words. We've got words, works and wonders. And Lord, I pray we'd use all of those in our sharing of your good news. But Lord, I really pray that this church would be known as somewhere where people signpost others towards you. Lord, we thank you for those who signposted us towards you. And we long to be those people for others. So use us, Lord. And during this series we're doing, Lord, I just pray this would not just be another sermon series, but this might be the start of a movement for us where our faith becomes, dare I say, viral, Lord, to others. I pray you would use us. I pray you would release us. And I pray we would make you known together. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a safe space where we can weep together when we've had a bad time, celebrate together when something else has happened. Lord, this is a team effort. No one's in competition here. So we go for it together. And I pray, Lord, for those moments when it's just too hard. I pray that someone else would say, do you know what? I've got your back. I'm cheering you on. I'm with you. And that would be enough for us to keep going. Amen.